Sorry, welcome to the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio. We're happy to have you with us. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotorola, the chef in the hat. We are two lonely chefs. Because, um, Thierry, you had to close all your restaurants, That's and right. now, now you're consulting on a, a gig down at Lulu uh, sure. at the airport, right? Yeah. And uh, me, on the other hand, I have given some ownership of my joints to some of my teammates. Finally. They keep booting me. <laughs> they should, I should have had that in my contract. Everybody has a page in history. <laughs> it's a chapter is written. Come on. Are you on. saying? Uh, Natasha Benningfield said that. I'm saying you did your A days. You need to move sideways. No, no. I'm still working like a dog. We have a live audience today. Where are you guys from today? Bellwood. Bellwood. I should have known that. In Issaquah, Bellwood uh, is visiting us today. Their second time, I believe, as a group. So we're excited to have them in our audience. We're at the Hotel Andra. It's been remodeled beautifully. Uh, there's uh, all sorts of things going on. We'll talk to you a little bit about a staycation that we're offering here uh, later in the show. We're at 4th and Virginia in downtown Seattle. So if you know where Lola is or the old Dahlia and Dahlia Bakery or Serious Pie, is like we're right there in the heartbeat of downtown Seattle. If you want tickets like to find Bellwood folks, you just go to hotstovesociety.com and come to our show. Annie and uh, Eamon and Emily are making a beautiful breakfast for us this morning of a Spanish tortilla, a some chorizo sausages, a delicious light and fluffy blueberry muffin, and I think, what else is on that breakfast? Do you remember? Coffee. Coffee, tea, tea you name Chart. I mean, you chart. You get the whole lovely Swiss chart. Remember the Swiss chart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, our hippy dippy producer, Pamela, doesn't eat ruby chart. Yeah. How, I do now. how can you be a hippie and not eat chard? I've seen the light. You've seen the light. Okay. <laughs> and the stems. And the stems. You've seen the stems, too, because we cook it all here. Uh, some classes upcoming here at the Hot Stove. Uh, Thai Street Food Brunch on 422 uh, with the faux broth dumplings on 428 and a sumptuous cookbook dinner. Pasta for all seasons with popular chef Michaela Tartaglia. Nice. And I done. had a little uh, I had a little glass of wine with Michaela down at her place because I got to see her new cookbook. Oh, is it out already? Oh yeah, yeah, it's out. You get um, that class includes a copy of the book. Oh, maybe oh, wow. I saw it early on. Maybe I saw an early copy. It's just coming on. But yeah, that's on five twelve, and she is a hoot. If you want to see a piece of uh, a slice of Seattle's ethnic love. Uh, come see Michaela. She is, uh, she'll talk to you in Italian, she'll talk to you in English, and she'll talk a combination at the same time. And the name of her place is? Casalingua, down there in the Pike Place Market. Yep. So it's, if you're ever going up like to uh, behind De Laurentiis in that little market courtyard there, uh, her restaurant is right there. And yeah, she's like an institution in that market, too. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's, uh, it's super fun to sit and have a glass of wine, a little bowl of pasta, which is exactly what I did. And, and I enjoyed going through her new book with her. I mentioned Pamela, our producer. Uh, Sean is here, our technical director. Pamela, tell us about our giveaway that we have, our staycation here at the Hotel Andra with dinner at either Lola or across the street at Sirius Pie, whatever you're in the mood for. By Mother's Day, uh, Palace Kitchen will be open, so you can oh choose boy, that you too if you that. wanted. So tell us about uh, what people have to do, because behind you is, I think, the, the, in, the inspiration. Well, we're obsessed with stoves. Yes. And we're honored to have your mom's stove here. And we want to see what kind of stoves you either grew up with or are cooking with now. Uh-huh. So we've asked people to send me a picture. 
Did you see Betsy's picture? Yeah, it was wow. beautiful. I forgot about those double-deckers. The, f- the Frigidaire Flare. Yeah. Yeah, flare. that was awesome. It's going to be hard to compete with that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm saying there's a little Wedgwood six-burner sitting right You're not winning you. the contest. Oh, okay. No. You're not so, playing the contest, Tom. So you got a, a night here. You got tickets to the radio show. You got dinner at one of our joints. And it's all for just a picture and a little bit of a story. I personally want to know what you loved off of that stove. Because um, my mother made delicious Schnecken in her ovens, which is a cinnamon roll pull-apart from her German heritage that her mother made and that her mother, Duchess, made. So Wow. There's a lot of Schnecken coming out of those. Uh, a lot of cookies, <laughs> a lot of turkeys came out of that uh, stove. So. so send the picture to me. Right. It doesn't have to be a picture of the food, but I was just curious what you loved coming off of that stove. At least tell us what you're making with it. And you have a hot point, 1950-something. 50, 52. Uh-huh. But it doesn't look half as good as this one. But it's definitely useful and it still works. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've used that stove for 35 years now. And, yeah. you know, sometimes my wife says, well, you know, it'd be nice to... Uh, I'm like, nope. It's nice. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I mean, well, we're gonna... till we crack the, the you know, the, the person... By uh, change the whole kitchen because my, my kitchen would not be suitable for a professional stove, so I would have to change the whole kitchen. Yeah, but, that's why I put a hood in. I have a five foot hood in my but, kitchen at home. So yeah, I mean that's what I would want in my kitchen too. And so I'm like, no, nah, we're not doing that yet. The uh, we're going to put a, a little video online uh, of our a new stove here at the Hot uh, Hot Stove Society, and uh, Pam is going to take. Are you going to take the video for me? Yeah. yeah. One of the things that people love about my mom's stove when they go to look at it is they open it up and they can't believe that she cooked for 70 years for a family of 10 on that stove. It looks like it's from a showroom. Yeah. She loved taking care of that thing. All right. What's your favorite taste of the week, sir? Um, I did a little trip to Canless Restaurant. Some friend took really? us to uh, Canless. I had been to Canless in a few years, obviously. Uh, during, obviously, COVID, I went there during the crab feast and all that stuff, but not inside the restaurant having dinner. Um, some delicious. It reminded me of how few of those restaurants we have left in this city in terms of that style of dining, that style of um, care, you know, giant wine list, incredible service, you know, people everywhere. I'm like, oh, my God, they have so many servers. All I could think about was ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. <laughs> <laughs> peril, peril, peril. <laughs> I feel for them. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but... Um, Absolutely, you know, beautiful service, and we had a nice, beautiful table overlooking, you know, the lake and everything. It was, it was absolutely. It just reminded me how much of a Seattle institution Canless is, and you know, you and I have mentioned how you know it was such a an institution, especially during uh, the COVID time. I felt like they were holding the flag of the city, like let's not give up and let's keep going, you know, mm-hmm. and do something and get creative. And they was, sure did. That was it. Marvelous. Was very remarkable to see that and. It's very cool to go and visit that institution once in a while. Yeah. Well, yep. good for you. That's, uh, that's on my list. Every time, I'm like a last-minute guy, and you just can't get in there last minute. Yeah, no, it's, but you got to go to the bar. They have a lounge bar, and they move yeah. through. And generally, I have shorts on. Hey, <laughs> I'm not shorts, too. Uh, love those guys. They've done an incredible job. Yeah. Uh, up next, uh, get, out the, get out of the red for breakfast and try some of these ideas, like a bowl of pho. When we come back on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Waiting for the dinner bell to do the bell thing. Dinner bell, dinner bell ring. And I'm trying to get my tummy right. With some rice noodles in some beef broth, basil in the mint leaves, drown in the hoisin sauce. When you want it, not really much to say. We eat a big bowl 
Bible and go smell like it all day. Bean sprouts. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show in Cairo. Got a lively audience here today. The team is uh, busy making their uh, Spanish breakfast for everyone. You guys excited about that? I certainly am too. Uh, Pamela, breakfast. I I don't know. I've probably told you my story about uh, when Loretta was going to SAS up at 12th and Madison for years, um, Seattle Academy of Arts and Sciences. I would drop her off at the school and then drive right down 12th right into the parking lot of Fobac right. and sit there and have, um, at 8 o'clock in the morning, I would have my big bowl of beef noodle soup. And it was, in my mind, the perfect way to start the day. People look at me like I'm crazy about that, but it really is. It is. You just feel it good is, after it eating it. It is incredible. It. I used to do that going to a Rebel in Renton and exercise and come back uh-huh. via Renio and stop at um, stop at Baba at like nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Oh, you get a nice bowl of oxtail pho in the morning. Your day will definitely be better. Mm-hmm. What is I mean, your favorite thing, Miss Hinckley? I have been exploring tinned fish more deeply. Oh, you have and not I, for breakfast? Yeah, and I'm what? I'm crazy into sardines right now. So my favorite thing <laughs> is to I am going to make calling you out. You know right what? Me too. Me too. I'm going to make it for you and you're going to have to eat it in front of me. <laughs> totally. Beautifully sliced avocado, uh-huh. squeeze of lemon juice, uh-huh. flake salt, yeah. open a tin of sardines. True. Get a little bit of the sardine oil. For and breakfast. You're saying for breakfast. This yeah, is a yeah. breakfast segment, right? This would be yeah. my lunch, not my no, breakfast. This is breakfast. Okay. Because you want the protein and all that good lift from yeah, the yeah. avocado. True. That sounds good on paper. But I recently discovered a perfect product in the supermarket from a beloved producer, Maya Kamal. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And it's a little packet. They call it Everyday Doll. And it's red lentils, butternut squash, and coconut. And you just warm it up in a little saucepan. I usually add a little bit of water, so it comes out in a texture like oatmeal. But it is so delicious and comforting and warm, and I can't wait for you to try it. I want everybody to go buy it. It's on sale almost everywhere now, two packets for $7. And it's a serving size for two, and it's spectacular. That's for two? Yeah. So Mike will actually eat this in the morning? He loves it. Yeah. Hmm. That's a lot. Well, I will say it looks a lot more interesting than a bowl of oatmeal. Yeah. And it looks more interesting than sardines and avocado first thing in the morning. I mean, that so, doesn't fit my coffee. One of the great things about having a bowl of pho in the morning is that it, it does what you just said about your avocado. It does give you the lift in the yeah. morning that sometimes peanut butter toast does not. Or, right. Or, you know, I keep our pecan and flaxseed bread sliced in my freezer from the Dahlia Bakery. Good idea. And then I just make toast in the morning and put on the... CB nuts, uh, sea salt, peanut butter, but I, it doesn't feel. It doesn't make me feel a certain way. Whereas a bowl of pho brightens my day. Yes, and- that's what I'm trying to get to with these breakfast alternatives. Uh huh. So um, I always have fish stuck in my uh, in my freezer, and that's also a good one to have for pho. You can, I mean, pho is, you know, basically a broth with something in it, right? That's ultimately what it is. With fish stock? With fish stock. You just do a fish stock and you do a cod or you can do halibut. Right now there's beautiful halibut in season. And you do that with some noodles and some vegetables. You could do some bok choy, you know, put the whole thing together and then put your halibut sliced super thin. Just drop it in there after it boils and the fish cooks instantly and you get a wonderful seafood broth. Mm, That sounds like a great addition. it's It's really good in the morning, especially with a little grated ginger that gives you a... 
a little perk right in the morning? Absolutely. Better than sardines on the toast, I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm, I'm still, I'm still, I mean, I would I have that. sardines would, on saltines. I would have that for lunch, no problem. But for breakfast? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm do not. You, do I'm, you have an innovative egg uh, twist? You are our egg master here. Well, I don't know if it's an, an innovative, but I love eggs any style in the morning. Probably one of my favorite way is um, a nice piece of uh, Dahlia Bakery bowl of bread, nicely toasted, brown toasted, and um, an egg that is five minutes poached. I mean, five minutes boiled. Then very, you take it out, you crack the shell. It's like very runny. soft. You crack the shell, and then you crack it in half and put it and spread it all over that toast. And a beautiful slice of soft bacon. So a soft boiled egg. Soft boiled egg. Yeah. And a um, soft bacon. I'm not a crispy bacon kind of guy. I'm a soft bacon kind of guy. And um, you're like my father. My father would just warm it up. It was so gross. Oh no, no, no! But good bacon. I mean, like really delicious bacon. I know bacon. what you're saying. I don't mean like no Oscar Mayo. Um, well, that's interesting. The uh, yeah, I think a lot of people get a little squeamish about rare bacon, but even even when it's good. Yeah, uh, but it's not. It's not rare. It's cooked. It's just not cooked. As fast and as crispy okay. as if you leave it in the pan longer. I, mean, I could get it longer and crispy, but I like it a little bit softer. You know, uh, I, I never loved eggs in the morning until I was at, uh, I was, there were two things that kind of turned my head. One was when we were staying at Juliana's uh, just outside of Alba. And every morning she would bring us a soft-boiled egg and those little cute little egg cups. Mm-hmm. It was the and egg you, cup that did it for you. Yeah, and you just kind of break it open and you scoop the egg out with your spoon. And that, that was never a thing for me. We had those growing up and I hated them. But for some reason at this little agricole in Alba, Italy, it tastes taste different. different. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's common in, in France to have that on the bar. Like yeah. you stop on your way to work and you have a double espresso and you have a half uh, a soft-boiled egg. With its, you know, with a big, nice big long crouton to go inside to, uh-huh. to dunk in it, and you eat your egg like that. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. And now here in our market, you can just buy a hard boiled egg. You can't right. buy the soft boiled eggs, but right. you can buy a hard boiled egg. And, yeah, these are. And then the soft. other egg that I had was in, at um, changed my mind on omelets, and I've told you this before, I believe. But I was at a cafe. I was in Paris for some reason by myself, uh, and I was outside the Louvre, and there was a, like like there are on every corner brasseries. Sure. And I was in some. Brasserie Louvre, and I had a little goat cheese and fine herb omelet for some reason because I hate omelets. I did at the time, and it was the best thing I ever omelet I ever tasted. And I have made a million omelets, and it's just not something I would make for myself, but now I do. Right. I think part of the key is a thin omelet. Yeah. It's not a big thick thing like you get in the yeah two egg omelet. Yeah. So let it spread out in the pan, and you're better off even folding it twice rather than having a thicker egg on your omelet because to me that's what really gets things wrong and the other thing that gets things wrong is when you undercook it like you do you (laughs) always you like a soupy omelet which i can't i can't stand i like it i gotta have my eggs runny runny too yeah have to be runny there's some things about you i need to learn because it's true uh, you've changed a little bit from your like for you to walk into this kitchen and say you have (laughs) Avocado and sardines on toast for and breakfast. Runny eggs. I, I, yeah, I'm still not sure I believe it, even though you looked me right in the eye and told me it was so. I'm not sure I believe it. I've okay. got a. Uh, I saw a recipe, and Terry, imagine you've done this, where they treated the eggs like a crepe batter and made very thin layers and then stacked them with herbs right. and goat cheese so it kind of looked like a crepe cake. Yeah, at the end you roll it and you, or you fold it you know, in, in square 
It looks like a crepe that's folded. Yeah, you got to have a nonstick pan and you got to have a wider pan, like a, an 8 to 10 inch pan with only two eggs and you spread them. So it's very thin. Yes, and I think that. And do you go for uh, crispy edges or do you keep well, it? Well, it depends on your heat. But if you have a little bit higher of a heat, it will crisp up right away. So it become more like an Indian, uh, what do you call the large crab for breakfast? A roti. Or, roti, like yeah. a roti. On Cairo Radio, we're going to be right back with more when we welcome cookbook authors Aaron Bunting and Joe Fisser to talk about their new book, Edible Flowers. 97.3 FM. The avocado lives its very own dream and add a little garlic and tomato to squeeze some lime. It's up to you. Holy guacamole, that is fun to say. Counting flowers on the wall, that don't bother me at all. Playing solitaire till dawn with the deck of 51. Smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo, now don't tell me. Back in the hot stove kitchen, it's Tom Douglas and, and Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. We are on the fabulous Zoom. You know, it still amazes me how our lives changed three years ago and everyone went on Zoom. But we are on it and uh, we are talking with Aaron Bunting and Joe Facer. Uh, they have a new book out called The Edible Flower, A Modern Guide to Growing and Cooking and Eating Edible Flowers. And if you're a picture book cookbook person this is the book for you oh yeah the visual are absolutely outstanding outstanding and then chef you said to me when you walked in say what else can they do to flowers that haven't been done already and then you opened the first thing you looked at was the uh, rice paper wrapped fresh vietnamese spring and what did i say i said said, wow "Wow." really cool (laughs) really cool so (laughs) So. um there's a lot you can do with flowers that we didn't quite realize but we'd like to welcome them from Ireland onto the show on Zoom uh, and into your headphones or however you're taking in our show. Maybe you're watching us on our YouTube channel. So, Perhaps. Uh, welcome, uh, Aaron and Joe. Hi. Really Thank glad you. to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, we are hoping that your kids kind of run in and ruin this thing for us because <laughs> we like to see how We're people respond to that. Uh, tell us about your backgrounds a bit and how you got started um, in the culinary world. Do you want to go first, Erin? Yeah. Like we both had completely different backgrounds before we met at university, so quite a long time ago now um, and I was studying history of art and Joe was studying engineering and um, then I went on to have a kind of career in arts management um, in London. Um, I'm from the North Island originally and um, went to university in England and then stayed there for a good long time afterwards and had a career in arts management and really I spent quite a lot of time helping other people be creative. Um, it's kind of quite a lot of my work was around kind of facilitating other people's creativity, organizing events to help them connect with the right kind of clients for their work and that type of thing. Um, and uh, I just felt like maybe I quite wanted to be creative myself. So I went to, um, about eight years ago now, eight years ago now, I went to Ballymaloe Cookery School, which is a famous cookery school in the south of Ireland in Cork. Um, I sat on a big 100-acre organic farm and I did their three-month culinary course, which is kind of residential course, full-time residential course. And then after that, just um, came back to London and we... I started working in, in, a, in a cafe in London and also we set up a sort of small supper club from our house in East London as well that we were doing a couple of times a month, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I, I got. And then, well, maybe I should let Joe talk about it before we talk about moving back to Ireland. Yeah. So um, like Aaron spent uh, a good chunk of life in London with a proper job, you know, with a, a salary and a commute across London on my uh, my little bike. And um, so I, I worked, studied engineering, and then worked in sort of construction and property. Property. So mainly working on one big project around the back of King's Cross in London. Um, so building stuff, employing architects and engineers and soil scientists and fountain consultants and all that, all that jazz. Um, and, yeah, just uh, had this sort of vague notion, which um, is probably a bit weird as I grew up in London, but I, I had this idea that when I grew up, um, I'd move to the country and grow my own food and um, have chickens and pigs, and that was just something sort of in the back of my head. And then... 2016, we moved from, from London um, to Northern Ireland, so to Northern Ireland for me, back to Northern Ireland for, for Erin, um, and set up set up a, a business that we still don't really know what it is, do we? <laughs> we, we, we both call the edible flower, though, which is which is a convenient, sort of slightly confusing thing with the book. Um, but but basically, we we like growing food, cooking food sharing that love with other people and we do it in lots of kind of different ways um and i guess the book is the latest way of of doing it um but we're, we're based on a little seven acre um organic small holding uh just sort of 25 minutes south of belfast yeah and we grow stuff and we run soccer clubs and um uh, uh, csa and have a delicious life yeah so yeah Good. What a treat! I know it sounds really, it sounds really simple in the way, and you're saying it. We know, we know, it takes a lot of work to do this kind of stuff. Farming is not for sissies. No, no. Farming is for very strong people. It's not a joke. If you want to do it yeah. seriously, it's a lot of work. Yeah, and that's like you know, with we've done a lot of sort of interviews recently, and you know, you talk about it, and you go, oh yeah, it is really, really brilliant, and like you know, you convince yourself and you believe it, but then you know, you go back to the seven hours of uh, compost shoveling or weeding or um, <laughs> planting out or the, you know, the little celeriac seedlings that I let die in the polytunnel yesterday because I hadn't watered them. And, um, yeah. you know, it's... Yeah, and I suppose the kind of what the kind of model that we've gone with is sort of trying to add value to that because it's so difficult to make selling organic veg add up as like a, you know, on a small scale, like we're, we're doing it. So um, a lot of what we do, we kind of add value around it through supper clubs which are you know kind of pop up um dining events that we run about once a month and then um we do multiple nights once a month and then this community supported agriculture scheme which is people buy into the season and get the veg box for the whole year but we also run kind of community events around that so people don't just get the veg box they also come together as their whole as the whole kind of group um and do some farming um uh so help us out with some stuff on the farm and then have a big meal together as well so we do those kind of saturdays once a month don't we over the season yep. yeah you've you've picked some um especially the flower side of this some difficult things to farm in a funny way because they're such handwork and i know at our farm we finally dropped flowers. We finally dropped cherry tomatoes or the little sweet 1000s because there's just so much handwork compared to picking a big beefsteak tomato off a plant. Um, yeah. So you've picked a hard, a hard topic inside of the farming topic. Yeah. Like it feels like we, um, you know, if there's an easy way, we choose the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I am. 
Yeah, yeah, but that's that's very cool. I mean, it makes you very different, number one. And at least you can know what the hardest part of the job is and always make it easier on yourself as you move along. Yeah. You got to do the hard hard stuff first and then you can appreciate and go, okay, now I can cut down and, you know, get rid of the stuff that's really not necessary. What we've ended up doing is is we um we now run um regular volunteer days um and actually once once our CSA harvesting season kicks in we'll be getting a bunch of volunteers in every week to help us harvest so you know we we've we've discovered that if you spend half an hour picking edible flowers in the garden it's like a glorious joyful thing to do but if you do it for seven hours every day and left them in the waves. It's pretty miserable. Yeah. So, uh, so we try to uh, get people to come and do it for free um, for the joy of it. And so far, amazingly, that seems to be people working People love doing out. it. We feed them and they have a, a good time. And, yeah. um, and then we sell, it. sell them some of the veg back to them. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, apparently, Mr. apparently Mr. Biden is in Belfast this morning. And maybe oh, you yeah. could enlist him and Dr. Jill to come help you. Absolutely. Well, they'd, they'd be so welcome. Very welcome. Yeah. yeah. As long as you know. They, uh, you you can have so much uh, free help just with American tourists coming to find their roots. Uh, <laughs> yes. I know my grandfather yeah. was literally, from Belfast. Literally yeah. finding their roots. Yeah. 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 Connecting with the soil. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's important stuff. It is, it is true that in the world we live in today, there's plenty of uh, urban dwellers who dream to put their hand in the dirt and, and, you know, so they're the perfect target for eight hours of free work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like, it totally has totally amazed me. We only, we only started this kind of, um, volunteering thing last season when I just one week, I realized that I had about 400 hours of stuff to do that week. Um, uh, and you know, other things to do and small children to look after. And I just knew that it was, physically impossible so it was like right starting a volunteer program tomorrow um and it's like people are just people just are so brilliant and you know careful and want to learn and do it right and um yeah it's been really rewarding yeah and then they all make friends with each other and it's you know it's brilliant well i will caution you to not bring that model to the states because in the states uh, you have to pay minimum wage (laughs) even if they volunteer uh yeah exactly yeah uh, when you come, when we come back, we're going to talk about your book, The Edible Flower. Talk about some of the recipes in there, and uh, enjoy the, the photographs that nobody can see on the radio, but can uh, buy the book and find for themselves on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven three FM. Society Show. We're talking with 
Aaron Bunting and Joe Facer of the uh, who've written the new book called "The Edible Flower: A Modern Guide to Growing, Cooking, and Eating Edible Flowers." I would say they've also. I, I don't know who took your photographs, but they are spectacular. Uh, it's a great uh, coffee table book on top of being a culinary book. Aaron and Joe, we talked a little bit about your background in the arts and culinary uh, culinary schools, and you know, I'm not, you know, time spent getting on the farm, getting this to the table. I'm sure they're learning every day. Pamela, this <laughs> seems right up your alley. What's your most interesting thought about this book? And you're a gardener. What will you take with you when you are looking at this book? Found it to bring into your kitchen. Borage has overtaken my yard, and I never thought about the uses for it. I was growing it for the beauty. So this book is making me bolder and changing my planting Mm -hmm. plan for this year. Because I want to bring... The thing about the book is colors. You know, we always talk about eating the rainbow Mm -hmm. and trying to get as much nutritional value out of varied food. So um, this book is the inspiration for getting gorgeous color into your yard. Right. And we talk about eating with your eyes, and that's another way to brighten your plate. Exactly. Yeah. And they are are not just eyes um, flower. There is also tasty flowers. I mean, some some flowers are much tastier than others. Mm -hmm. Um, First thing that comes to mind, especially this time of year, is uh, tulips, for example. Tulip leaves have a texture and a flavor that is... Actually, there's actually a flavor to it. Some flowers don't have as much. Uh, marigolds have very strong flavor. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. please, enter the, enter the arena and do tell us what else has flavor. <laughs> well, Boring. I mean, I, yeah, I would say, I mean, obviously I agree with all that, like the color and the eating the rice and things like that. But yeah, like I really wanted, we really wanted to bring through the kind of flavors of how to use flowers for their kind of flavor as well. Yeah, not, not just a pretty garnish, but... Uh, yeah, and, and magnolias are one at the moment. Yeah. They're very much out and in season here in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I don't know whether you're maybe a bit further ahead of us, but um, magnolia flowers have this amazing um, gingery cardamony flavor. It's really strong. Um, when you pickle them, they taste very like the kind of pickled ginger that you get with sushi. Um, so I just really love that like combination. Um, and uh, we've got some good recipes for like making syrups and stuff, which can be used in cocktails. And um, there's a whole section on that in the book. And a magnolia syrup makes a really good, um, like delicious kind of gingery cardamine syrup. And we just did a supper club where we used it and made magnolia flower Moscow mules. So using the magnolia flower oh as like ginger element. Magnolia. Yeah, Who knew? Magnolia. Well, they are all over right now. The magnolia oh, trees are beautiful full here blossom. Right yeah. I'm taking. Yeah. I'm glad I've got my clippers in the car. So Pamela travels with home. clippers down the alleys of Seattle. <laughs> That's how she Bloody eats her salad for lunch. <laughs> That's how you make your salad for She's lunch. She's a lilac thief. <laughs> yeah, lilac. Yeah. So yeah, I was I, I was intrigued by the the rolls that you made the Vietnamese rolls and you made. Uh, what yes. flowers did you use in that? Uh, I mean, really any kind of little flower that, you know, will kind of reasonably sit flat. But I really love viola, uh, violas in them. So that's like little pansies. I think, what do you call them? Johnny, like, Johnny, Johnny Jump, jump ups? ups? Yeah, Johnny, Johnny Jump Ups, yeah. I had yeah. them on my asparagus so, uh, at Easter. Oh, yeah, yeah beautiful. Yeah, gorgeous. Um, and they're, they're so pretty. And they just, they, because you've got, quite a lot of them have those kind of deep purple colors. They come through really well through the rice paper wrapper. But you can also put, I've also put like nasturtium petals in there before, calendula petals, um, little daisies. Um, all sorts of little flowers yeah. can go in there really well. And they just make it look so beautiful um, mm-hmm. and, you know, add a bit of, like, flavor and 
fragrance. You know, some of my favorite parts of the book are things I didn't expect. For example, you show how to lift and divide herbs so that when you are uh, annually kind of harvesting and then ready for the, the next year to show up on your patio or in your backyard, you know how to expand your portfolio or tell Pamela to only put borage in pots and not directly <laughs> into the ground. Good, good call. It's a weed, so be careful. What about yeah, that? Yeah, it does, it does spread, but it's so, like, I, I don't know, like, pick those, harvest those little leaves when they come up. If you don't want them somewhere and you're, like, you can see those little leaves coming up, let them go a little bit, harvest them, and then the leaves themselves are, I mean, we have a recipe in the book for a kind of um, Tuscan bean stew, um, mm. uh, like a ribolita type thing, and uh, they have this kind of delicious, like, cucumbery flavor, um, mm-hmm. and they add a th- thickening. The words just have a kind of thickening, and so they're really great in cooking. So if you do see little self-seeded, self-seeds that you don't want, nice. Well, I, I feel like our borage flowers don't self-seed very much because we have we have chickens who, like, love eating the seeds. Oh, yeah, they do, yeah. So they'll oh, literally yeah. jump up and eat seeds out of the pod before they drop. So um, <laughs> so the alternative is just get yourself some chickens. And, uh, <laughs> you know what? We, I have a lot of birds in my backyard, and they come and eat my bronze fennel. The bronze fennel at the end of the summer, I cut it off. Ooh. I put it in a big cardboard under my porch to dry out. And now the, all yeah. the birdies are coming. You know, it's, it's winter. They... During the winter, at the end of winter, they were coming in the box. I would see them in the box picking up the seeds from that dry fennel, which yeah. is also a good idea. But that fennel is so delicious. Those little yeah, fennel you seeds. want to keep that for yourself? Oh, yeah. Love. I want to eat the bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Nicely seasoned already. Like Mitterrand. <laughs> didn't, he get, uh, didn't he get slapped for eating little birds? <laughs> yeah, my, my wife goes, we look through the window, my wife goes, oh, aren't they cute? They're eating the seeds. I go... Man, they must be so tasty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of my favorite underutilized uh, herb or green flower, and that we used to use it all the time 30 years ago, was the arugula blossom. Oh, yeah. And so often... So delicious. It's really nutty and good, and so often they're cut off because it's, it's kind of a signal that your plant is bolting, and people tend to either cut it off or just pull the plant or... It stops producing green arugula leaves at that point. So it's a flower I just don't see around much anymore. Do you have that in your book somewhere? Yes, we um, yeah, we talk about. Do we actually? We do talk about. Yeah, there's the section on mustard. Yeah, the section on mustard. So um, rocket would fit into that. Both sweet and wild rocket would fit into that kind of mustard um, leaves section. Yeah. So yeah. Because we grow all these leaves anyway for our, our, you know, for our business, that we let them and we pick them for salad leaves, and then when they go to seed, we would like let them go to seed and have all the flowers. We use them a lot actually, and this is a good time of year for them because all the ones that we've had in the holly tunnel for our kind of winter salad have just gone to seed, and we use them at our most recent event. Um, we actually made the Ukrainian picnic canapes, which are like little cucumber slices with a sort of like. Herby, flowery cream cheese. Pick loads of the petals off the um, off the little mustard flowers, and then make some pickled radish. And basically, like super simple little canapé. You know, you basically just got a slice of cucumber, a little bit of seasoning, cream cheese, loads of herbs, some of the little edible flower petals in there as well. Pickled radish, and then garnish it one of, with one of the little um, uh, mustard mm-hmm. flowers, and really nice. Mustard greens are delicious for sure. Yeah. Well, we only have a minute left. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners to, to look for in the book? Well, I mean, I don't know. I was going to say, what do you think? Well, I was just going to say, everyone should grow their own edible Yeah, flowers. that's what I was going to say. Big garden, little garden, window box, patio, 
balcony, you know. It's no so accessible for people, you know, even if you're a city dweller and you only have like a tiny space or something like that, yeah. a window. Hot marigold in a pot and you could be eating sprinkles of beautiful orange petals all summer. That would be my takeaway. What about you, Erin? Yeah, and I think also just thinking about, yeah, using the edible flowers, not just as a garnish, but as um, for the flavor. And like lavender, you know, if you have a spot and you can grow some English lavender and um, pick that, you know, you can use it in the season and then you can also just cut whatever you don't use, hang up a big bunch of it, um, in your kitchen, let it dry. I put a brown paper bag over it, and um, then you can be using that lavender like all year round, and it's so good in sweet and savory dishes. I would say, you know, we love it with roast lamb. It basically has kind of similar flavor profile to rosemary, so mm-hmm. lots of places where you might use rosemary, you could so use fun. lavender instead. So fun! The book is called The Edible Flower. Uh, our guests have been uh, through Zoom from Ireland: Aaron Bunting and Joe Facer. Uh, it's a modern guide to using edible flowers in your cooking. So thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you so much and all the best of luck. You guys rock. Thank you so much thank for having you. us. It's a delight. We appreciate you. Yeah, and all the best of luck. Up next, Milpa Massa owners Perla Ruiz and Roman Javier are here to join us about tortillas. Quiero I love hablar, a homemade tortilla. Una palabra de Mexico. On Camera Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Let's go. Here we go, it's the Seattle Kitchen Show on Cairo Radio. I'm Thierry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And I'm Tom Douglas. We have a few places around town. You have Lulu at the airport. I've got Sirius Pie across the street here at 4th and Virginia. Uh, the soon-to-be-open Palace Kitchen. Lola Carlisle Room up by the Paramount Theaters. If you're ever going for a show, stop in and say hi at the Carlisle Room. And a few more, but we'll, we'll stop there for now. We're welcoming into our kitchen uh, Milpa Massa owners Perla Ruiz and Roman Javier. You guys have been up since 4 o'clock this morning making delicious corn meal products how are you are you alive <laughs> we are alive yes. very awake it's nice to have the bridge open from west seattle again huh oh, oh amazing. my gosh it is a lifesaver because we actually live in north seattle oh. in the wedgwood neighborhood oh yeah oh, wow so it was crazy it was crazy during the bridge. Two closure. years. Two years. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it took us a long while to find a space. Mm-hmm. And eventually when we did, it was West Seattle and it was just a couple of months before the pandemic and then, and then the bridge closure. You got a double whammy on Oh, oh my, my gosh, God, yeah. yeah. Everywhere. Well, I'm glad you're still alive and uh, kicking. Tell us what you brought us here uh, today. Uh, so we brought, of course, some yellow uh, and blue tortillas, as well as a uh, blue cornbread and some um, chips. Did you make them? We made them, yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're all uh, uh, made locally. Um, so we use the masa that we make for our tortillas uh, into cornbread and uh, some of our Next day, old tortillas into chips. I see. This is not an easy process, this uh, making masa, right? You're making your own. Correct. And so you're nixtamalizing it, and yes. uh, then what? How do, you, how do you go about this? So you've got the big corn, right? Yes. The big corn kernels. Just to summarize it, so nixtamalization is basically a process of 
uh, cooking uh, dried corn kernels in a solution of water and lime or lime. limestone, yeah. yes, yeah. or ash, yeah. uh, letting it rest uh, for a day. And then the next day, you grind the corn into uh, dough to make our masa for mm-hmm. if you want to make tamales or whatever other type of corn products you want or uh, tortillas. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. And so you obviously have a machine that you're do- using for shaping on your corn tortillas. Oh, yes. Because yes. they're perfect. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank you. That's, that's the, that was one of the hard parts. We had to find the, the right uh, tortilla oven, and then we also had to find the right uh, molino or the, the, the mill that mm-hmm. grinds the, the corn. It had, and we, we wet grind the, the, the corn as opposed to dry, uh, dry milling. Oh, wow. like, for, like for wheat, you dry mill, it's all dried, but our corn is wet, and we actually yeah. have to wet the, the mill itself, or the stones, because oh, wow. um, it, it rotates at a very high uh, RPM, and it, we also run water while we're grinding the corn to cool the stones down. Hmm. So when the corn comes out, in, in, a, in a dough form, it, uh, it's slightly warm because of the friction. Right. Yeah. Well, we actually, huh? I know this is, seems odd, a big, fat, white guy like me, but I actually own a volcanic stone masa grinder ah. mm-hmm. uh, that I bought in L.A. from when we opened Cantina Lenya <laughs> oh, yeah. some 10 years ago. Yes. Yeah. And yes. so we would do the same from our own corn that we would buy from Hacienda, the heirloom corn, Correct. and kind of go through the same process. Well, it's not surprising from a white guy like you and coming from a Filipino guy like uh-huh. me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the only tortillero in the U.S. as far as I know, as far as that's you doing know. this on a funny. commercial scale basis. Yeah. It's funny how we all kind of gravitate towards what hits our heart, you know. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. it is an art. I found yeah. that out. Yeah, exactly. And so you must bring some more context to the equation. Uh, well, I try to. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up on the Mexican border in Tijuana, across the border mm-hmm. from San Diego. So culturally, we were not as connected to the process of nixtamal as uh, a lot of people in the rest of Mexico. But uh, having been living here for so many years, the whole idea of not having a good tortilla... It, it's, it just kills you. It, it's just, you know, if you can't have some good cheese, some good bread. Mm-hmm. Some good bread, yeah. It's the exactly. same idea. Exactly. Yeah. And, and just trying to find them. So it was all about bringing tortillas from Tijuana or from wherever in Mexico that we were traveling to. It got to a point like, okay, we can't do this anymore. Because it wasn't just bringing for myself. It was bringing for a lot of friends mm-hmm. and bringing... Um, not just that. I, I kind of became like a, like a dealer <laughs> in tortillas <laughs> yeah. with all these friends. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot that we learned in the process of starting this business. But, yeah, so the learning curve and how to make the tortillas between the two of us. My mother grew up... Um, in a different part of Mexico, and when she was younger, her job at 4 o'clock in the morning before going to school was taking the nixtamal to the local mill to get uh, the corn milled so that then she would take back home so that her grandmother could make the tortillas. Mm-hmm. So suffice it to say, um, my mother refused to make any tortillas that way ever again <laughs> mm-hmm. because it was just, she yeah. was so young. She was right. like nine, ten years old having to walk to the mill with her bucket of nixtamal mm-hmm. um, to the mill. But that is like a tradition. Right. So mm-hmm. 
we we definitely grew up differently. So so the tortilla making process we learned yeah. between us. It was just basically a need for it where we'd go see our family in in in, in Tijuana or, or Guadalajara, and then we'd come back, and then like flying back uh, like on the San Diego airport, we'd bring like ten pounds or twenty pounds of tortillas, and the TSA would look at us and we just smile like they don't have that in. Seattle, and they're like, we understand, and then we'd go. Uh-huh. So after doing that for a few years, we started looking around, and can we do it here? Yeah, or if can, you can start carrying place here, if you start bringing twenty pounds in your luggage of anything, <laughs> you should definitely start thinking about making it. Yeah. <laughs> That's gonna get heavy. Oh, totally! I, and eventually, it turned into road trips. We would go down to Tijuana. We would drive. I mean, because it's I five. It's a straight shot. <laughs> With with our little Subaru and yeah, we eventually came back with with a with a stone mill that we installed in our basement and that's where we started practicing. We're talking with the folks from Milkpa M I L P A Milpa Massa uh, over in West Seattle, and we're going to talk a little bit more about where people can find these in the local grocery chains. And also, what do you do with them once you do have these in your fingertips? <laughs> On Cabaret Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. kitchen here at the Hot Stove Society Show. Perla Ruiz and Roman Navier are here. They have the uh, cool corn tortilla company called Milpa Masa. Small batch stone ground right here in West Seattle. And then, Chef, you were curious about where they actually got the corn from before they right. went through the assimilization process. We live in Seattle, Washington, and I know there's not corn growing here all year round. So, and I know that sourcing corn is definitely an issue in some part of the country. So how do you do it? What do you do? There is, uh, Washington State is a big corn producer, but yes. they don't do the type of corn we want. They do sweet corn. And so we're trying to change that little by little by working with farmers. And hopefully they'll grow it for us. So I should um, have asked the question, what kind of corn do you want to grow? Exactly. <laughs> <you need>? <laughs> There's <laughs> many types of varieties. There's like a dent flour uh, and... and um, um, Lint. And flint corn. So we tend to go more for a medium-sized uh, what they call dent corn that has more of uh, 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 more of starch content. Uh-huh. Um, and another thing also that we're focused on is showcasing or introducing American heirloom landrace varieties as opposed to the Mexican varieties, right. which we work, we, we love working that usually on our Saturday and Sunday, just trying different varieties, but showing a, a, another variety or an heirloom variety that originated from the U.S., Minnesota number 13, Wapsie Valley, right. you know, oh, Bloody, Bloody Butcher. Butcher. I love that name. It just Bloody sounds Butcher like, is yes. the name of a corn? It's the yes. name of a corn, and it just sounds like you're cursing, but yes. you're not. <laughs> Bloody Butcher. Bloody Butcher. Yeah, and it's a that. beautiful corn. Yep. Uh, it's, it got its name because in the milking stage, when it's still nice and young, um, it's, it's all white, and then little speckles of red starts to come out. Um, and then for some reason, how it started is people would like say, oh, it kind of reminds us of a butcher's mm-hmm. apron. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's how it started. Makes excellent uh, cornbread and a more dense and, and, and strong uh, structure of a tortilla. When we started Cantina, Lina, we were getting heirloom corn out of Mexico through Macienda because mm-hmm. I, part of the idea was in Mexico, corn 
meal is government supported, right? And you have to sell your tortillas for this exact oh, yeah. same price cross country. And there's a tortilla shop on every corner, just about, and cool little machines and open garage doors. And uh, but we were trying to. The idea was to kind of save some of these old heirloom varieties. And you're actually going a little bit different path, which is identifying the varieties that are out there now instead of heirloom varieties that are good for the process. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, we, excuse me, we also do work with uh, different Mexican heirloom varieties. We work with Macienda, uh, with Tamoa, another uh, uh, company located mm-hmm. in Mexico City. And they work with different small farmers. That's the key. The small yeah. farmers, which are the guardians of the seeds that go back generations and generations. And so many have been lost. So definitely we do use uh, their corn. A lot of our customers do uh, specifically request uh, Mexican heirloom varieties mm-hmm. um, just because of the different flavors and, and textures. Right. Even though it's just corn, every corn variety has its own little thing going for it mm-hmm. with regards to aroma, texture, um, the, the, the when we cook. Hmm? The density, probably. The density, yes. Yeah. The starch levels. Um, even the when we cook it, the pericarp, because in our tortillas, we don't necessarily, there's no gluten, right? So there's really no binder so we got to we ha- we had to find this binding situation in our tortillas in working with all these different corn varieties especially from the US uh, Mexican ones they're so easy to work with for the most part but all these sometimes different var- well i know we have had isn't the starch the binder it's a combination uh-huh it's, it's usually what they call the, the pericarp or the hull uh-huh. that once you once during the process of excuse me of nictimalization, um, it, it, it breaks it down, but it also makes the outer hull of the corn uh, it gelatinizes it uh-huh. and uh, uh, and behind that or on, underneath that it uh, the, uh, the, the the starch the, the starch or the body of it uh, becomes more of like a pectin type thing, right. so that acts as the binder for. Um, for the tortillas, yeah. you don't want it to overcook, and you want that starch in the middle, kind of dry, because then that's what adds the body to it. Mm. Okay, so before we get too far, I want to know where where can people buy your corn tortillas here? <laughs> so currently, uh, we have our little store that we open mm-hmm. uh, for retail Saturdays and Sundays in West Seattle uh, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. winter hours. Um, there's a few. I didn't lo- know tortilla hours were like bankers' hours. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that's actually I mean, that's actually even better than banker hours. <laughs> Two days a week, four hours. Well, but it's fantastic. No, go ahead. No, it's good. No, yeah, it's good. but but we're at the shop by four a.m. So that right. you know we're up. And you're at sold out like by two. Two thirty. So. Yeah. So 4 a.m. to start the whole process because we cook the day before, mm-hmm. the nixtamal, and then that following morning, say on Saturday and on Sunday, we have to go in and do everything, mm-hmm. prepare all the no, tortillas and package them. So, yes, um, uh, our little retail shop. Um, and we sell the tortillas, the fresh masa. A lot of people are into making their own tortillas and tamales and gorditas. And there's so many applications uh, to use our, our masa. 
<laughs> the cornbread, cornbread the, yeah. the tortilla chips. The cornbread was a crazy thing. That's the well, cornbread you, the, maker here. The, I, the I lived flavor in the South really for a while. comes out in the cornbread, yeah. yeah. Right. I lived in the South for a while, uh, and that's when I started really getting into cornbread. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It's a very different cornbread. It's really delicious. It's, Thank you. I like the, it's not so sweet. It's not, it definitely tastes like something naturally done Thank to you. it as opposed to something out of a box. Is it yeasted or not? No. No. No, it's uh, 100% gluten-free. It's just uh, dairy and, and eggs. Buttermilk. And buttermilk. The good uh, stuff. And so are you in any grocery stores that people can find So you? right now we do very small um, uh, wholesale Leshai Market mm-hmm. and Leshai, of course, um, Deldridge. In, there's the uh, Deldridge Co-op. Co-op. There is, um, oh, I'm totally blanking. Fremont. Uh, Fremont, El Lugar, uh, Renee Erickson at the Wilwins. She carries our tortillas in their food larder. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a few of them. The majority of the, the work that we do is definitely more for food service. So we do distribute to a lot of smaller restaurants in the city. Cool. Mm-hmm. So during the week, it's our wholesale, and then Saturday and Sundays when we play around with other varieties and yeah. and do the <laughs> retail. retail. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah, yeah. You get time to play around on the weekend. That's nice. Oh, oh, just yeah. kidding. To try. <laughs> Four o'clock in the morning. That's what? not playing anymore. That's no, cooking. That's, that's, that's cooking. <laughs> we only have a minute. What's your favorite thing to make with these tortillas? Let's just say your basic corn tortilla. Oh my gosh! What's your to favorite me, thing, yes. The favorite thing to me with the tortillas, I mean, I'm uh, any type of quesadilla, any cheese with my blue corn tortilla. Uh-huh. That's my thing. As in, uh, like a quesadilla uh, melted cheese. Yes, yeah. uh-huh. melted cheese. But uh, to eat them in another way, I would say it's chilaquiles uh-huh. or migas which is the mixture of fried tortillas with uh, eggs and vegetables and, and maybe some, some chorizo, chorizo or something yeah, like that. that. Was, yeah. yes. I was waiting for the chorizo. Oh, yes. Yeah. Cilantro and, mm. oh, yeah. That is my favorite. And you are different. You, yeah. I think, you enjoy more cooking with it, with the masa, for example, because of the cornbread. He I does. discovered it, I, I like uh, recipe development. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're a mad like, scientist, is what you're saying. I, yes. I like that. We've been chatting with Perla Ruiz and Roman Javier. Uh, they have the Milpa Masa Company, M-I-L-P-A Masa, M-A-S-A Company, over in West Seattle. Uh, exact address? Uh, 3416 Southwest Webster Street. Okay, perfect. I'm going to come see you because I want some, whatever that's in that cornbread, I want some of that. <laughs> Saturday and Sunday. Saturday and Sunday, exactly. 10 to 2 p.m. There you go. Mm-hmm. All right, life is busy. Sometimes you just need to fill it fast with a satisfying supper. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show. Which has 97.3 FM. Cornbread, you ain't straight. You better wake up or I'll gas you gate. Been in this pot since half past two. Swelling and puffing and almost due. Pamela Hinckley, born ready, right here on the Hot Stove Society Show. Our producer is salivating over quick, simple suppers because you find yourself cooking much more than I, I bet you used to. You don't seem like you go out to dinner as much as you used to now that you're retired. Are you saving your pennies or what's going on? 
All of the above. I like to cook, but I like to have time. Uh-huh. And I was writing this segment um, for those who don't have the luxury of time and to think, like, what are the components that you need to be able to make a satisfying supper quickly and still have a nice variety of flavor, color, texture? You know, last year it was all about throw everything on a sheet pan and put it in the oven. But I think that gets you kind of a homogenous texture. So I want to come up with ideas that you still get some crunch and maybe some sauciness. And the first recipe I saw that I thought was kind of brilliant was using a store-bought rotisserie chicken to do a cast iron version of a pot pie Mm -hmm. with a puff pastry crust. Mm -hmm. Because you can make, you know, if you've got just uh, hopefully some stock in the freezer, but, you know, a stock from the supermarket, you can make a quick little sauce, shred your chicken... Get the puff pastry on it into the oven. Yum. Popeye is deceptively hard to make, though. If oh, you yeah. remember how we struggled one. with it at Sea Town, oh my God! Yeah. Consistency a, is a tr- is a struggle, right? Yeah, yeah. it's know. very. It's not as easy as that, mainly because there is wetness and there is dough. Yeah, and that's where people get confused with that because you end up with raw dough and and there's lots of prep time unless you're using yeah. just all frozen vegetables and rotisserie right. chicken and, and frozen vegetables. Stock a good and, idea. Yeah. But we're going to have a nutritionist on in a couple of weeks, and she's a big proponent of being able to have some frozen vegetables because they're harvested at the, their peak, right? And the, their nutritional values are preserved. So, so in lieu of I, that, I, one thing I've discovered this year is uh, the halibut season just started recently, and I got a big halibut and uh, made some bigger chunk of halibut. You know, like a like a roast, like a 10, 10, 10 ounce, twelve ounce piece of halibut, which is a big nice chunk of halibut and uh, you can roast it or you can poach it ahead of time and uh, use that for a couple of meals so the the reasoning behind that is first you have a poached chicken let, uh, i mean a poached halibut pardon me with let's say mushroom bok choy you know something like that and you put together as a broth and then you put the halibut in it and you cook it but the big piece left over you can use in a salad the next day like with some green beans and Brilliant. Like in a, in a Niçoise IDE, except instead of using canned tuna, you're using some poached halibut that you have from the day before. Either poached or roasted, leftovers are always delicious that way. So the, the point that I'm trying to say is you cook on Sunday and you have fish on Tuesday yeah. without having to cook it. That is so And it's smart. also a great quick salad to make because your, your green beans are already blanched in your refrigerator. The only thing you have to do is... Toss your lettuce, you know, you have your dressing already made in your fridge. You make all that stuff on Sunday for the rest of the week. So tossing it together, you get a couple of olives. You get some uh, um, uh, boiled potato maybe. So you can toss the whole thing together with a little bit of lemon olive oil dressing. Put that over your lettuce and your fish. And you get a wonderful fish salad for Tuesday. I also think that something like a big chunk of halibut like that holds up better in your fridge cooked than it does raw. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you keep it raw, you're going to start having those smells and nobody really care about for fish. Where if you take it beautiful and fresh and you cook it right away, that piece will stay much better. Yes, absolutely. Another quick one right now. Crab is super cheap oh, yeah. right yeah, now. We've Although been eating a lot of crab. The crab is not as cheap as you would wish it was going to be. Came down a little, though. <laughs> it's still, it's still 40-some dollars a pound. Yeah. yeah. But it's all done. All the work is done. And so it's a fast, easy thing to kind of 
do with a little uh, linguine with crab butter or make yourself a crab cake. Uh, pretty simple, depending on how many ingredients you put in it. But, uh, yeah, now's the time. If you use whole crab, it still takes a long time because now you've got to pick it at the dinner table. Yeah, but that's something you but could crab- do on Sunday with a couple of friends or some kids or... You know, pick you the could, crab and then use it the next day. Yeah, you mean, and then it's put it got to be used fast. Well, you can put it in the it freeze once it's blend, once it's cooked. Don't do that. To well, you me. could. <laughs> don't you freeze my? Oh, crab. What do you mean? Don't you freeze my crab? <laughs> well, if you can if you can eat the whole. Well, thing I'm not worth once. picking a fresh crab for. Then don't have me over. That's what I gotta say. You know, once you take it, don't take the uh, what do you call that? The crab pot out of the water, and uh-huh. there's six crab. You're not gonna eat six crab in a row, just because they're fresh. So you're going to cook them all, and you're going to crack them all, take the meat out. Yeah, and, and then invite some friends over. And then, listen to me, pack the crab with just a little bit of the juice of uh-huh. the crab so that it doesn't hurt the crab meat. And then when you thaw it out, you can just put it in a quick broth and have a wonderful crab soup. The only thing I would say about frozen crab is you have to let it thaw naturally. You can't run it under water because it yeah. just gets yeah. all stringy yeah, and yeah, gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but if you let it thaw naturally, it's a better product. Pamela, let's go back to your chicken pot pie for a second because... Uh, the other easy topping for that is if you don't have the puff pastry. And I'm not a huge fan of puff pastry on wet things, like a pot pie gravy or Paul Bocuse used to do his onion soup, soup yeah. right, with the pot pie over the... It's a truffle oh, soup. Oh, I want that. Truffle, truffle soup. soup. So, Valérie Giscard but I don't love the way pop, uh, uh, puff pastry reacts to moisture. Right. I prefer like having a pot pie with drop biscuits on the top mm. or something simple like Croutons. that. Croutons. They're easy to make. Yeah. Uh, croutons is a good idea. Croutons is good because it can hold the cheese. And if yeah. you put some grated cheese on top, like in the onion On top soup, of your pot pie. You can do anything you want, right? This is America. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Get with the program, in case yeah. you don't know. <laughs> uh, but pot pie with cheese, it's good. Thai beef salad is one of my favorites. Oh. It, again, it's a prep thing, though, because there's lots Not of little me. things to prep, especially the, the uh, bittersweet shallots and... All the different little parts of a Thai beef salad, to me, so, is a really fun. And it's a way to use inexpensive cuts of meat, like hanger steak or skirt steak or flat iron or things like that. There are a few things you don't prep ahead, like sauteed spinach and stuff like that. That takes two minutes to cook in the pan, not even, you know, to be, to be ready. So you keep that for the day of. But your roasting vegetable, your, there's plenty of things you can do ahead in bulk. So you can use that sparingly through your week, you know, through your next three, four days of of work and making it easy on yourself. If all you have to do is saute the spinach and toss the salad with dressing, it's a lot easier to make dinner than if you don't, you know, if you have to start from scratch. So that would be my, my take in that is prep your, you know, blanch your, your asparagus or your, you know, do all the stuff you want to do ahead of time. Try to do it on Sunday and then, you know, put it in container in your refrigerator and then, you know, warm it up and toss it together at the last minute. It's possible and it works. Yeah. You know, we had our friends on the last segment from uh, our new friends, I should say, from Milpa Masa. And we have our new fish taco rub that's in our line, which is really citrusy. It's got some uh, mild, bright um, ground chilies in it. Uh, Not spicy at all, uh, but the citrus is really what comes out to me. So quick fish tacos. Fish tacos. You love a fish taco. I love But what is, you know, to me, they get bogged down sometimes when you get them out in a restaurant. They're full of too much slaw or they're too much yeah. this or that radishes what, what do you chives. think is a perfect fish taco radishes I, radishes I, I, I chives uh, pickled carrots i mean you use all these different ingredients yeah. in fish taco i like a fresh fried wow. tortilla 
but not crispy fried. I like it soft fried. Soft fried. And then a big dollop of guac and my piece of uh, grilled fish mm. and maybe a, a radish or something. But yeah. typically what I've seen people do in Mexican restaurants, the radish is a side thing. It's not something you build into your taco. Right. I like to build. Uh, we, we just like to build. Things. I just can't. I just can't just have meat and taco. That never works for me. You never I, just hold the taco in your left hand. Your fork in your right, and then just eat and eat. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. Okay. No, not for me. I love. A I mean, good it literally corn. is a bread. I know, but I love a good corn tortilla with, like, my my favorite is like you know leftover roasted chicken, you know shredded, nice little pieces, and then toss that with just a little bit of lime dressing because I love lime, cilantro, diced avocado. I mean, it takes literally green onions. And it takes literally 10 minutes to prep that. Mm-hmm. And it's, you get the most wonderful taco. You warm up your, I take the cast iron pan and warm up the, uh, my nice uh, tortillas mm-hmm. and corn tortillas. And it's so simple and so delicious. I mean, you, and the, I use the salsa to put into the taco too, so I have moisture. Mm. You know, I bought the, uh, at Costco, I like to kind of buy the prepared foods to kind of see, well, why didn't I think of that moment? Uh, and I, they have a carnitas at Costco that is pretty darn good. And it's got enough fat where when you put it in your saute pan that it crispens up like oh, carnitas nice. should do. And uh, it is a perfect thing for these fresh corn tortillas along with that fish taco. Nice. Yeah. All right. Are you, what are you going to make? Of all those things, what are you going to make tonight, Pam? I'm going to do some ground pork with soba noodles and the first of this asparagus that's coming out. So nothing that's So Terry nothing we talked about. No, no. I love that. That was a good end of a segment. I'm glad we went through that route. I mean, we spent 10 minutes talking about how you should make a you good tortilla. And she goes, I'm going to make noodles. Okay. She's, she's going Japanese. Soba and ground pork. Yeah. Good for you. That sounds you know, good. I make a little togarashi rub over there. You should try some of that. On I'm it. going to. Uh, up next, it's our Rub With Love Tasty Trivia, brought to you by Rub With Love Spices. Looking forward to taking down somebody today. I don't know, but I've, Chef I've been Annie's getting crushed, over. so I need the rebound. Chef Annie's coming over? I don't know. I'm just asking. We're going to find out. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Sing for your lunch and you. Have some clam chowder followed by beefsteak on rye, pumpkin pie with cream and coffee. I want a green salad on the side. Don't forget the French fried pizza pie, garlic and anchovy. I keep running up calories. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. It's time for our Rub With Love Tasty Trivia Challenge. Rub With Love is our line of flavorful and intentionally dry, lovely spice rubs of fabulous mustard and four deeply satisfying sauces. When you have them in your pantry, you have the tools to expertly season every meal well. Uh, you can find Rub With Love locally and find retailers like the Fresh Fish Company, which we were just talking about being next to the Beast and Cleaver up there in Ballard. Mulbacks in Woodenville, Double D Meats in the Mountain Lake Terrace area, Ken's Market on Greenwood, or Yokes Fresh Markets with 19 locations in eastern Washington. I shop at Yokes sometimes when I go over to the farm. Nice. Of course, we have all the usual uh, places for it, too. So, Pam, uh, how do we play the game, and who's playing? I know I see Lisa in front of a microphone, and what do they win? 
Lisa's going to be able to pick three rubs. From our um, wow. from, yeah. from Yeah, it's going to be spectacular. And it's her birthday! Yay! Happy birthday! Tell right. say it to her in French. Joyeux anniversaire. Oh, very nice. So wow. nice. Woo. So uh, each of the three contestants is going to get five questions. They're charming and kind of easy today. Uh-huh. We, always, right. we always hear that. Yeah. Chef Harry, Go ahead. Uh, the Ivory Coast and Ghana produce over 50% of the world's supply of what bean that is the basis of chocolate? Vanilla. Oh, beans. <laughs> that would be Madagascar. Okay. Like, sorry. <laughs> Too late. Ivory Coast. <laughs> Cacao. The, thank you. <laughs> I should know this. <laughs> Number two. Uh, one of Andy Warhol's most famous artworks is a set of 32 canvases, each bearing an image of a red and white can of soup from what company? Campbell. Correct. I've seen the real one in someone's house here in Hans Point. That owns one of the... That wow. he owned you one have of fancy the, friends. Uh, I didn't know until I opened the door. I went, wait, I know this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that thing is huge. Wow. I'd love to see one in person. Uh, number three, the Rheinheitsgebot is a series of regulations on the production of beer in what country? I'm going to guess uh, Germany. Correct. Okay, good. Because that's where the Rhine is. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty uh, in his place again. The famous Humpty Dumpty character has appeared for centuries. Uh, what food is Humpty Dumpty commonly portrayed as? I'm going to guess a potato. That would be Audience. my first guess. Give him a hand. What is it? Huh? Egg. Oh, okay. He's an egg. <laughs> All right, that's true. That would be an egg, too. Found in, on many types of sushi, uh-huh. nori is the Japanese name for the edible species of the red algae genus Pyropia. It's frequently used in the format of dried sheets. What is the English term for this edible ingredient? Seaweed? Yay! How'd you do? Three? Uh, right now, I'm three out of five, yes. If we keep going at this rate. Seaweed. I should win. All right, Lisa. Lisa, your turn. All right. Lox is... You know, at your age, Lisa. <laughs> She's going to get them all right. Uh, Lox is a filet of the brine version of what type of fish? Salmon. Yes. Salmon. Number two, although it expanded to grapefruit growers in 1976, the cooperative Ocean Spray had primarily focused on what other fruit throughout its existence? <laughs> We're going to try cranberry. Yeah. yeah, you're rocking it. Uh, number three, what privately held corporation founded in 1911 in Tacoma, Washington, is a conglomerate that has not only its namesake bars popular around the world, but also M&M's, pet food, and animal care services. Who makes M&M's, in other words? Not Hershey's. Uh, Clo- yep, so you're, you're going to... Oh, Mars. Mars, yay! Founded in Tacoma, what? Yeah, that oh. was news to me. That was wow. news to me, too. Uh, brown, fo- brown Almond Roca is Tacoma. Yep, nope. That's where Mars started. Apples and Dramatically different from today's sweet fruit uh, associated with summertime, what large fruit was cultivated for hundreds of years simply for hydration purposes rather than food? 
watermelon. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for the clue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Pink, thanks for the clue. For- yeah. There's a, <laughs> there's a snack often associated with a type of entertainment venue. This snack has been created for thousands of years, but the accessibility increased rapidly in the 1890s with the invention of a dedicated machine. The snack is made from a species of Zia maize. What is this snack? <laughs> I was going for Chex Mix, but not for no. maize. Uh, Fritos? Give her, I heard it. Oh, popcorn. Popcorn, five for sure. five. Oh, my God. <laughs> five out of five. Boy, wait a I go. mean, that was an easy five. Happy birthday to you, I, know, I Happy guess. birthday. <laughs> nice Thanks, Lisa. job. Nice day job. Nice Come on, job, round of applause for Lisa. Hi, Tom. Hi, Pam. What is the common name for the food that is technically steam balls of crushed durum wheat semolina that originated as a magrebi dish served as a stew? It has a repetitive C in the name. Gnocchi. <laughs> repetitive C. Couscous. 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 Number two, what common leafy green Why don't you say, is... what's pasta from Morocco? I know. Because it's more fun this oh, way okay. to torture you. What common leafy green is native to Persia and is often associated with a specific cartoon character who made his maritime debut in 1929? What Popeye. Is, what is the, the common leafy green? Oh, spinach. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> There's a dessert with a slightly mysterious origin. Is it from France, Spain, or England? No one knows. That is also known as a burnt cream or Trinity cream. What is it? A creme brulee or a flan. Very handsome. Correct. If you take a cabbage, cut it finely, ferment it with various lactic acid bacteria, the output is typically what side dish? Sauerkraut. Yes. And finally, Shukut. Shukut. <laughs> horseradish was the first commercially packaged and sold foodstuff by what Pittsburgh-based company? Pittsburgh-based. I'm just not sure if they're... Go with your gut. Heinz. Heinz! Yay! How about that? How do you do? Four out of five. All right. Lisa kicked our potatoes. Lisa is a big winner of the day. Happy birthday. She gets to go shopping in the (laughs) gift shop with three free spice rubs. Congratulations, Lisa, and happy birthday. If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas and Company. Also remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, just listen via podcast. Subscribe with your favorite podcast app. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Sean McFadden is our technical producer, and our magical Cairo editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. Thanks for listening. Have a fabulous weekend. <laughs> <laughs>